did it. If you would please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the book of Philippians. We'll be focusing our attention on chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 this morning. Uh, Over the last couple of weeks, we have been going through a Christmas lesson series, and Bob has preached on the gospel according to Mary, where we learned of submission. Last week, we saw the gospel according to Joseph, where we learned of obedience, and this morning, we come to the gospel according to Paul, where we learn of humility. So with that introduction out of the way, please give attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired word. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Might he write its truth upon our hearts this morning. Come with me to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come to a text that blows us over with its magnificence, with its glory. And Lord, I humbly confess that I feel inadequate to preach on such a text as this that speaks of the humility of the God-man, your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I pray, Father, that your Spirit would be upon this feeble preacher so that I would preach your word faithfully. And be upon all who are here. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see our humble King. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Today, as has already been mentioned, we come to the Gospel according to Paul. And our topic before us is the topic of humility. And so, naturally, we ought to ask the question, what is humility? What does it mean to be humble? One dictionary definition of humility is as follows, a modest or low view of one's importance. Seems like a good definition. A modest or low view of one's importance. Now let's say that we decided one day, you decided one day, that you wanted to live out that definition in your life. You're going to make it a motto for your life. It's going to be your New Year's resolution to realize that dictionary definition of humility in your life. What would you do? What sort of steps would you take? 
I imagine you would probably do something like give more money to the poor or perhaps give money to charity. Maybe you'd give your car away to somebody who needs it and start walking to work. You would do all of these things in order to evidence that you are selfless and not selfish. Now, the problem with this, however, is the moment you get done doing all these things, you can say to yourself, man, am I humble. <laughs> and what's the problem? Pride has just creeped in the back door. And isn't that the tricky thing about trying to be humble? Whenever we try to be humble, self always seems to get in the way. And when self is in the way, pride is not lagging too far behind. Maybe somebody would even come up to you and say, you're so humble. You're so giving. And you might give a really good response. Well, you know, I just realize I'm not that important. Giving off the appearance of humility, but deep down inside you're saying, man, I'm really happy people are recognizing that I'm really giving. If you want to see fake humility, we're entering upon the awards season in the entertainment industry where you have the Academy Awards and the Golden Globes. Fake humility is on display when you see these Hollywood actors give their acceptance speeches. It's fake humility at its best. Benjamin Franklin, when he was asked by a friend how he was doing with his humility, he said these words. I can't boast of much success in acquiring the reality of this virtue, but I had a good deal of success with regard to the appearance of it. I think he gives us an astute insight into humility with that quote. Franklin saw that there was a difference between the appearance of humility and the actual reality of it. And what Paul is concerned with here is not the appearance of humility, but the reality of humility. And the reality of humility is not found in some dictionary definition. It is rather found for Paul in a person, in the person of Jesus Christ. After Paul has given his charge and command to the Philippians in verses 1 through 4 of our passage to be humble, we get this transitional statement in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on in verse 6 and 7, Who though was in the form of God did not, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. Right after Paul gives a charge to the Philippians to be humble, he backs it up with a, an example of humility you and I can never attain. An example of humility you and I can never realize. Brothers and sisters, no matter how hard you try, you can never be God. And you can never be God-made flesh. You see, what Paul is saying here is that true humility... The essence, the core of humility is fully realized when God becomes man. Baby Jesus in a manger is not just some heartwarming scene. It is humility in its grandest. It is humility in its most excellent. It is humility in its most glorious state. And any chance of us being humble 
We must take our eyes off self and place them onto Christ, our humble King. And Paul here in this passage seeks to instruct the Philippians on how to live with a Christ-centered humility. Now I want to break down this passage into three sections. First, we have the mind of humility, verses 1 through 5. Second, we had the example of humility, verses 6 through 8. And third, and finally, we have the glory of humility, verses 9 through 11. But first, the mind of humility, verses 1 through 5. Verses 1 through 2, we read this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul is writing this letter from a Roman prison. And here in the darkness, in the dungeon of a prison, he says, I will be filled with joy when you, you the Philippian church, have the same mind and the same love. Notice, for there to be encouragement in Christ, comfort, love, participation in the Spirit. In other words, in order for us to have all the benefits that are ours by being united to Christ by faith, we must have the mind and the affections, the mind and love working in concert together. Christian love is right thinking. To love as a Christian is to think the right way. And what is that mind that we are to have? Look at verse 5. Have the same mind among yourselves, which which is yours in Christ Jesus. In order for us to love each other, we must know Christ and His work of love for us. We must know the love of Christ that is seen when he becomes a man and he lays down his life for his sheep. In the Gospel of John, chapter 15, Jesus says these words, Greater love has no one than this, than one laid down his life for his friends. Now why does that passage pack a punch? Why does that passage hit home so deep? It is because we know that that is precisely what Christ has done for us. If Christ would have refused the cross, that passage wouldn't pack the punch it does now. But it's precisely because Christ doesn't just give us the definition of love, but He demonstrates it in His own life. And so now, to love is to look at Christ and His love, and the love He defines and the love He actually lives for us. To love is to have the right knowledge of Christ's person and Christ's work. It's interesting, when you look at today's concept of love, it's 
completely contrary to any semblance of truth. It's contrary to thinking. It's all about emotions. It's all about feelings. We often hear the phrase, you can't tell me how I feel. It's one of the reasons I think that over half of our marriages in this country end in divorce. Once those initial butterflies are gone, once that initial powerful love at first sight feeling evaporates, it's time to call it quits. My feelings have changed. Today's concept of love is a fluctuating, self-serving love, which is no love at all, brothers and sisters. And why? Because it is not based on truth. It is not based on the truth of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. Verse 3 through 4 we read, We do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. What does it mean to live a life of rivalry and conceit? Well, it means to always be making comparisons to other people. It means that when my neighbor does better than me, I'm unhappy. But when I do better than my neighbor, I'm happy. When I have a higher status than my neighbor, a better job than my neighbor, then I'm content. But when my neighbor has a better job than me, then I'm discontent. It's doing everything with your eyes open on what your neighbor and other people are doing. So that people become merely markers to gauge how well I'm living life. We no longer see people as image bearers of God, but rather as objects meant to reflect back to me my self-worth. Humility is about making the right comparisons. It's not about comparing ourselves to others, but comparing ourselves to Christ, who saw people as his Father saw people as image bearers of God who needed mercy, who needed forgiveness, who needed the cross. We are to see others through the lens of Christ. Our lives are not lived before men. They are lived before Christ. And we see people through his love, through his grace, through his mercy. Secondly, we see an example of humility, verses 6 through 8. An example of humility, 6 through 8. In verse 5, Paul shifts the focus from being on the Philippians now onto Christ as an example of humility. Verse 6, we read, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, this word form has to do with what makes something what it is. What are the essential qualities? What are the essential attributes? What are the essential characteristics that make something what it is? If it quacks like a duck, if it walks like a duck, it's a duck. That's kind of the idea here. What is it that makes something what it is? In other words, Jesus has all the characteristics... 
all the attributes and all the essential qualities of God. Jesus has a divine nature. Jesus is fully God. And then we read, he did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. I think the New American Standard has the better translation when it says he emptied himself. He emptied himself. So what does it mean when it says first that Jesus is in the form of God and then he empties himself? Well, first we need to deal with what this is not saying. This is not saying that Jesus emptied himself of his divine attributes, of all those essential qualities that made him God. This is not saying, in other words, that Jesus ceased to be God in order to become man. Both Protestant and Catholic churches since the inception have said with one voice that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man in one person. So if this is saying that Jesus did not cease to be God in order to become man, what is it saying? How does Jesus empty himself? Well, I think verse 7 gives us the answer. By taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. In other words, God the Son empties himself by adding on humanity. In other words, this is an emptying not through subtraction, but an emptying through addition. It's a glorious paradox that is presented before us here in verse 6 and verse 7. God the Son empties himself, never ceasing to be God, but adding a human nature, adding humanity to himself, an emptying through addition. A few years ago, there was a reality show on one of the major networks, I believe it was NBC, and it was called Undercover Boss. And the premise of this show was a CEO of a major company would essentially go undercover. He would become an average employee in one of the stores that he owned. And he would do all the things an average employee would do. He would do all the menial tasks. He would subject himself to the authority of the manager of that store. But he never ceased being the CEO. He he never ceased being the boss of the manager that he subjected himself to. But rather, he laid aside all of his rights as the CEO in order to carry out his duty as an average employee. And that's kind of what we have in the Incarnation. Jesus Christ, God the Son, lays aside his divine rights. He lays aside his glory in order to become man. But he never ceases to be God. He subjects himself to the Pilots and to the Herods of his day while the whole time being their Lord. He laid aside his divine rights. He counted equality with God not a thing to be grasped. The meaning there is he didn't 
clutch on to his rights as God. But he freely laid them aside in order to become a servant. In order to do the mission that God had called him to do. God the Father. And if that isn't humble enough for you, brothers and sisters. Verse 8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And if that's not enough for you, even death on a cross. A symbol of shame. A symbol of guilt. A symbol of sin and depravity. Do you see in these three verses what Paul is saying? Do you see how far your Lord has stooped for you in order to save you? Brothers and sisters, from the glorious throne room of heaven down to the filth and muck and mire of a bloody cross, what a Savior! What a merciful and humble Lord we serve. What do we learn about humility in our own life? From this example of Christ, we learn that we must empty ourselves. We learn that we must die to self. It's interesting, when we look at, that, at verse 3, we see that same Greek word for empty that we get in verse 6. So that it literally says, do nothing out of rivalry and empty conceit. It seems as though Paul is giving us a play on words here. As opposed to those that are empty by puffing themselves up. Christ is empty by lowering himself. And becoming a servant. Really the question before us is which empty will we be? Will we be empty like the world around us? Obsessed with money. Obsessed with power. Obsessed with having influence. Obsessed with self-gratification, individual pleasure, and, and selfish ambition. Or will we be empty like Christ? Laying aside the glory of this world for the glory of the cross. In order to die to self and live to God and serve others. Finally, we see the glory of humility in verses 9 through 11. The glory of humility. We read in verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. The reason for Christ's exaltation. The reason that Christ at this very moment is at the right hand of God the Father is because he has become a servant and he has died a death on the cross. That is the reason Christ is exalted. Because he has become a servant and died on the cross, he is now glorified. The great German reformer Martin Luther spoke of two different kinds of theologians. He said there was the theologian of glory and the theologian of the cross. 
The theologian of glory expects power to be, be revealed in very much the same way we expect man to reveal his power. Through might, through brawn, through force, through authority. But the theologian of the cross sees that God's power is revealed in a way we could have never guessed. For Luther, at the cross of Christ, we see God's power over sin and death through weakness. Luther scholar Carl Truman writes this, So when a Christian talks about divine power, or even about church or Christian power, it is to be conceived of in terms of the cross, power hidden in the form of weakness. The resurrection of Jesus Christ vindicates the cross for what it is, the power of God for salvation. Jesus Christ, exalted at the right hand of God the Father now, points us to the power of Christ's humility. Verse 10 through 11, we are told that at the name of, every, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee will bow in heaven. Every angel will bow down to God. Every knee will bow on earth. Every human being will bow down to God. Every knee will bow under the earth. All demons will bow down before God. And they will confess Jesus Christ is Lord. That is the name that is above every name. We should read verse 10 when Paul says, at the name of Jesus. That should be translated, at the name that now belongs to Jesus. At the name that is now applied to Jesus because of his work. Because of his sacrifice. Lord. Do you see what Paul is saying here? The one who was born in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. The one who was from that no-name town, as Bob said a couple weeks ago, that town of Nazareth. The one who had no place to lay his head. The one who was mocked, beaten, battered, bruised. The one who has nail marks in his hands and his feet. That one, every knee will bow down and point to and say, Lord! Do you say it today, brothers? And sisters, do you bow the knee today? In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, when the wise men come to see the baby Jesus in Bethlehem, we are told in verse 11, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. That language of falling down is language we get in Scripture when one is presented before the glorious, awesome presence of God. Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel, when he is met with the glorious presence of God, he is, falls down on his face. The God of the universe, found in infant form, causes the wise men to fall down in awe and in worship. Brothers and sisters, this Christmas season... May we fall down in awe and worship of our humble God-made man. Let's pray.
Dear Heavenly Father, how we thank you for Christ, the humble Son of God made man for us, who has become a servant, who has obeyed you even to the dregs of death, death on a cross, so that now, Lord, he pours out his Spirit into our hearts so that we would put our eyes on him and live as he lived, as humble servants for you. Help us, we pray this Christmas, to die to self, to live to you, and to serve others. It is in Christ Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If you would please stand.